Section four of Stories from the Detectives Album by Waif Wander, also known as Mary Fortune. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirsty. Tom Doyle's Dream. How often have I had occasion, in the pages of the Australian Journal, to regretfully revert to my old evoker experience as a mounted man? If I had such a thing as a heart, I should fancy a voker printed on it indelibly, as Queen Mary said that hers would be found branded with Calais when the English lost that too dear French town. But as I have long since used up that useless commodity, I mean a heart, I must be content to see the word often printed on paper as I recall my many happy or exciting experiences in that well-known district. We were riding toward Corong, now Wedderburn, Tom Doyle and I, one day in November, some twenty years ago, he going with dispatches, I, to attend the court, when we came to an old track that once led to Sinnott's. Tom pulled up, and of course I followed suit. I'm quite a new chum here now, he said, but isn't that the old Sinnott's track? It is, I replied. Why? Let me think. It's four years since I was stationed at Old Kingao now. Well, in a shanty on that track, I had one of the most awful experiences of my life. I was younger, of course, and it made a terrible impression on me at the time, but when I left the district, I half forgot it. Now, however, the sight of the old track brought it all before me again. I should like to go and see if there is any remains of that shanty. We haven't time today, Tom, but on our way back tomorrow we can take a cut round in that direction. Meantime, you can beguile the time by telling me the story. We rode on abreast, at a foot-pace, for the track, though level, was slanting up a steep incline through a belt of tea-tree scrub that pushes itself out from old Sinnott's into the very confines of the bush through which the Corong road goes, and so, with an accompaniment of many-toned birds and the jingling of our own accoutrements, Tom Doyle told his story. I was stationed at old Kingoa, as you know, and had been round to Red Bank on duty. As I reached old Sinnott's, one of the heaviest storms I ever saw in the country broke over us, and before I reached the shanty I have told you of, I was drenched. Finding the utter impossibility of proceeding, I pulled up, determined to stop there until it was over. I knew the place well. It was kept by a man and wife named Blake. A sort of house of entertainment for swagmen, it professed to be. But, of course, there was a bottle in the corner, or more likely a barrel. I took my horse round to the slab stable, and made him as comfortable as I could. The thunder was by this time so heavy, and the lightning so vivid, as almost to deafen and blind one. It was about five o'clock, but, on account of the storm, nearly dark when I opened the back door and entered the shanty. My appearance evidently created no pleasurable surprise, the noise of the storm preventing my arrival having been heard. Blake himself, a stout, dark-complexioned Englishman, and two other men were gambling with dice at a side-table on which a candle was already burning, while Mrs. Blake was preparing supper at the fire in the wide chimney. Of course, I was greeted with great apparent welcome, policemen in those days being always persons to pay court to, especially where there was any sly grog-selling going on. Mrs. Blake, more particularly, insisting on my sitting by the fire when I had taken off my jacket to dry, and Blake supplying me with a coat of his own for the time being. "'Of course I'm not selling you this, Constable, dear,' Mrs. Blake said, with an insinuating, cunning twinkle of a very bright dark eye as she handed me a smoking jorum of hot punch. "'You know I would not do the like. It's only to keep out the cold.' "'Of course, Mrs. Blake,' I answered. "'I know all about that. Well, here's your health at all events.' My pipe was once lighted. I sat and watched the progress of the gambling and the appearance of the two men. They were both strangers to me. One was a low-sized man, with, I think, the heaviest black beard I ever saw. He looked like a sailor, and the other man called him Bob. The second was tall and fair, with the air of, as they say, a broken-down swell. Bob called him Bart, and I gathered from their talk that they had been mates for some months on the then-paying goldfield at Reynolds Creek. Bob was an eager, ill-tempered gambler, and as his losses increased he grew absolutely furious. Bart, on the contrary, was cool and sarcastic, and had not the supper been ready, they would, I think, have come to blows before long. Meanwhile the storm increased in violence until I was persuaded of the impossibility of reaching the station that night, and decided on turning in. A sort of sofa in the front room was placed at my disposal, 
and having accepted another glass of hot stuff from mrs blake i curled myself up in the blankets after having looked after my horse and fell asleep i had a most terrible dream i thought that i was wakened by a peal of thunder that shook the hut to its foundations and that in the midst of its rolling detonations came to my ears shrieks and cries for mercy i tried to get up but could not my limbs seemed of lead and not to belong to me it seemed to me that i fell asleep again in spite of myself in the very midst of terrible calls to me personally for help help constable help they are murdering me oh god spare my life spare my life i was really aroused by a sound shaking and starting up found both blake and the wife bending over me she a candle in her hand and in night-gear he in the same attire and shaking me roughly by the shoulder thank god cried the trembling woman as i sat up i thought he was in a fit what's the matter i asked feeling at the same time very queer a nightmare i guess constable blake replied you have been shouting and carrying on so that you nearly frightened the missus out of her life i've had a terrible dream blake i thought murder was going on are you sure those two men are all right all right he said what would hinder them to be all right they went to bed shortly after you did yourself as they mean to start for town at daybreak i can't believe it was a dream i said go and see if they are all right for the love of heaven come and see for yourself mr doyle the woman said and that'll maybe satisfy your mind the suggestion was good and easy acted upon i had not undressed and had only to get out on the floor and follow the woman with the light still in her hand she and blake led me to a room off the kitchen where we had had supper and where upon the ground simply rolled in their blankets lay the two men bob was nearest the wall bart nearest the door the thunder still rolled and grumbled as it passed into the distance but above it i could hear the heavy snores of the sleeping men your punch was too strong mrs blake i said i am sorry to have disturbed you and i went back to bed when i got up in the morning the men were gone now you've got my story sinclair what do you think of it i think you are hocused i answered i have often thought so myself since mark and that it was no dream at all but an awful reality i was moved the next day to carisbrook and the incident was partially forgotten but strange to say i saw that bart to-day in kingower and the sight of him brought the whole thing before me again isn't this somewhere around where the mail-cart was struck up a month ago yes passing this scrub but revenon if i was you i'd look after that bart and investigate that business of the shanty i mean to i've quite made up my mind that's why i'm so anxious to see if blake is still at that shanty even as the words were leaving his lips there was a sharp report and then another and a couple of bullets barely escaped doyle grazing my left hand and buried themselves in a tree at the right of the track bush rangers was of course the first idea with both of us and instinctively our revolvers were emptied into the scrub crack 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 if any man or men were hidden in the almost impenetrable tea-tree they would have been riddled had they remained where the light lifting smoke told of the discharged firearm from the effects of which we so narrowly escaped while tom was discharging his last chamber i was rapidly reloading but there was no sign of a return shot and what could we do to search that scrub or rather to attempt searching it would be a folly a regiment might hide there and defy us the best part of valour was discretion we'd better get past the scrub doyle i suggested there's no use stopping here to be made targets of i'll have the bullets at all events and tom coolly dismounted and cut the bullets from the tree in which they were not deeply embedded rifle he observed as he popped them into his pocket and remounted when we soon left the scrub far behind we made an early return start next morning and reached the old sinnet's road by ten o'clock as soon as we came within sight of the shanty so memorable to tom doyle and saw the smoke ascending he began to evince so strange an anxiety as was evidence how deep an impression his dream of four years previous had made upon him i wonder if the blakes are still there he said if they are i shall take it as proof that my dream was really a dream surely no woman could stop in such a lonely place all these years if she had been an accessory to so foul a midnight murder the shanty was a shanty in the original meaning of the word a wretched tenement 
seemingly falling to pieces from sheer neglect one side was propped up with some old slabs as the building was yielding to its own weight and inclining from the perpendicular the sheds once used as stables had fallen altogether and lay a rotting heap upon the ground together it would be difficult to imagine or picture a more desolate abode as we drew rein in front of the door a woman came to it a woman thin to emaciation and with great dark eyes flashing feverishly in her white sunken face her attire was tattered and neglected her hair thickly sprinkled with grey and hanging about her shoulders good heavens can this possibly be you mrs blake tom doyle cried staring at her in the utmost astonishment she came out and looked doubtfully in his face but at last her own brightened as she recognised him quickly moving close to his horse she said in an eager but subdued tone you remember bob he rambles about the place every night somehow he seems never to sleep what bob don't you remember bob bart's mate don't you remember the night of the storm and the dream you had ha ha the dream you had tom looked at me and shook his head it was only too evident the poor woman was not quite sane don't tell him she whispered pointing over her shoulder but he knows that bob never sleeps he is always rambling about the place at this moment the figure of a man appeared at the door i guessed instantly it was blake come inside and don't be making an ass of yourself out there he cried angrily to his wife who slunk past him like a scolded child why is this yourself mr doyle have you come back to these parts again yes doyle answered i'm sorry to see the missus looking so bad blake yes she's been pining now for a couple of years and worse her mind's giving way she has some of the strangest fancies you ever knew especially her nights if she don't get better i'll have to send her to an asylum i'm afraid that's bad do you know there's another old acquaintance come to kingower lately have you seen bart yet bart yes bob's mate you know i think he was at your place that very night i was here the man's face had flushed up hotly and then grown deathly white at first he seemed incapable of speech but looked behind him as if to assure himself of his wife being out of earshot you recollect bart don't you doyle persisted recollect him i've good reason to the cursed robber and so he's in kingower is he the day i meet him will be a blank one for him owes you a bill does he well now's your chance he must have money for he's putting up quite a flash place in the main street but we must go i only came round to see if you were in the old spot yet so long and blake went suddenly inside he was not however quick enough if his intention was to prevent his unfortunate wife from having any further communication with us we had barely put our horses in motion when the disordered looking being popped round the end of the shanty and stretching her long thin neck out toward doyle said in a loud whisper don't you mind what he says bob does ramble about at night no matter where you make his bed he can't rest he always rambles about at night and with a confirmatory gesture of her hand the poor woman darted toward the back door again not a word was exchanged for some minutes as we rode toward old king gower but at length tom asked what do you think of it mark i'm afraid that dream of yours was no dream i'm afraid so too well he added excitedly if i live to do it i'll find out the truth and if poor bob was made away with he shall be avenged please god i was getting quite interested myself and as i was stationed at kingower thought it quite possible that i might have a greater opportunity of watching and elucidating than doyle and i told him so i was just going to ask you he replied and i want you to ride round by bart's new place so that i may have an opportunity of introducing you as it were in an unsuspicious manner of course i agreed and we diverged a little from our direct way for the pleasure of seeing bart there is the place and there is the man observed doyle as we neared a new erection of canvas and deal the outside of the building or rather tent was evidently near completion and a tall fair man with a heavy rusty beard was on top of the veranda nailing up a broad strip of calico on which in large black letters was bart's restaurant he was but slightly above our level as tom rode up and accosted him hello bart is that what it's going to be i'll come and board with you the man turned round suddenly 
and at sight of Doyle a visible change came over his face. He rallied, however, and replied lightly, "'Yes, Constable. Oh. Is it you, Mr. Doyle? I thought I knew the face, but couldn't recollect it first. "'We've just come from your friend Blake on the old Sinnets,' Tom went on. "'He didn't seem too well pleased to hear you were so near him. I expect he'll be around with an account against you one of these days.' "'Let him come,' Bart said fiercely, as he descended the ladder and stood on terra firma. "'I am ready to square up accounts with him, and I guess he'll find the balance in my favour. How did he know I was here?' "'I told him. I saw you as I was going up, though you did not notice me.' "'You'll come inside, gentlemen,' Bart invited. "'I hope to do nothing against the law, and mean to keep friends with law-preservers as far as I can. Come in, and the missus will give us a drop out of my private bottle.' This was too good a chance to be refused. We dismounted, and having hooked up our horses, entered the large tent. It presented the same appearance as most of the ephemeral erections intended for the public accommodation in those days, and was a huge barn-like tent on a frame without lining, or, indeed, any break from end to end, save the low partition that parted the front from the back apartment. In the centre of the former was a long bush table with an oilcloth cover, and two rough benches running down either side of it to serve as seats for hungry diggers. At each side of the inner apartment a coarse curtain was stretched, shielding several rude bunks with blankets and such. Lodging, as well as board, was evidently to be provided for the patrons of Bart's restaurant. We seated ourselves at the table facing the partition, and Bart called out, Bab! In a few moments a tall girl entered with a dark complexion and low forehead, over which her night-black hair lay in heavy folds. She had full flashing grey eyes, a fine figure, and the air of a woman who knew her own mind. I was surprised, truly, for I had known this woman as a barmaid about twelve months previous at Casterton, and was so well acquainted with her private history as to have felt a deep interest in her. As soon as her eyes lighted on my face, she slightly flushed, but without further change of countenance, placed her finger significantly on her lips. Taking this sign to mean that I was not to claim any previous acquaintance, I was dumb, as Bart, in a sort of rough way, introduced us to his wife, and followed the few words with instructions for the production of that private bottle he had spoken about. It was produced, and its contents considerably reduced, as we chatted and feigned to make merry over our glasses. Once or twice Doyle vainly tried to lead the conversation toward the Blakes and the shanty on the old Sinnet's road, and I was glad, when at last, with reference to some projected addition to the tent, Bart took Tom out to the back and left me alone with the wife. "'How in the name of mercy did you fall across this match, Barbara?' I asked hastily, as soon as their voices had receded. "'Do you think you have done well?' "'I know I have, though not in the way you mean it,' she promptly replied. "'Are you happy?' "'Happy? No.' A change had come over the whole figure and face of the woman as her husband disappeared. She had been suave and smiling and agreeable. She got rigid as his back turned, and a dark cloud seemed to overshadow her face from the low brow where the black hair lay, to the firm, square chin down which a deep cleft settled, instead of the more womanly dimple. As she replied to my questions, her strong fingers clenched and her lips quivered. "'Have you found your father?' I next asked. "'Not yet, but I am close on his track. And,' she added in a hurried whisper, as voices came in again by the back door, I may soon want your help. When I do, I will go to you at the camp. We left shortly after, and I told Doyle of my previous acquaintance with Bart's wife, as well as of the few sentences that had just passed between us. What do you know of her? asked Tom. She was a barmaid at Cleveland's, and somehow or other she told me part of her history. Her father, a widower, and second mate of some ship, had deserted for the diggings after his last voyage to Melbourne, but after some months wrote to this girl whom he had left in Bristol at service. In the letter he stated that he had been fortunate and got gold enough to keep them both for life. With the money he sent her, Barbara came out and wrote to the address he furnished, but without getting any reply. Then she went herself. It was to Reynolds Creek. But he had left, and trace or tidings she had not got when I saw her last. "'Reynolds Creek!' repeated my mate in a thoughtful way. "'Yes.' "'And now she says she is on his track?' "'Yes.' "'I should say that was a determined woman. "'Was she fond of her father?' "'So fond that it seemed an infatuation. 
I have seen her face actually light up when she spoke of him as he used to be, and when the reality of his disappearance again looked her in the face, she would weep like a very child. The separated roads at which we had to part for a time was reached, and Tom Doyle drew rein and looked me in the face. "'As soon as I get to camp, I'm going to tell Brit all about this affair, Mark. I shall ask him for a week here. I think he can spare me, and it'll go hard, but you and I will get to the bottom of it. "'Do you connect Barbara any way with your dream?' I asked, wonderingly. "'Don't you? Oh, you're a fine chap to be looking forward to getting among the D's.' All at once my light broke through what Tom doubtless considered my stupidity, and I saw what he fancied he saw. "'Oh, you mean Bob?' "'Yes, I mean Bob and Bab. So long. I think and hope you'll see me up on leave in a day or two. In the meantime, cultivate your acquaintance with Mrs. Bart.' I turned my horse's head campward and abandoned myself to a deep consideration of Tom's supposed dream and its apparent present consequences. Could it really be that Barbara had married her father's murderer? Had Sailor Bob been really her lost father? What would be the result of Bart's arrival at King Gower as regarded the elucidation of the mystery at Blake's shanty, since Blake and Bart had evidently some terrible disagreement between themselves? When rogues fell out, should honest men in reality get their own? My mind made various answers to these questions during the afternoon and evening of that day. I felt a strong inclination to return to Bart's restaurant in the evening, but feared it might arouse suspicions, so I determined to wait until the following day, when I should have a legitimate excuse in township patrol. At the time I speak of, there were two of us stationed at Kingower, but on this particular day and night I was alone, my mate, Joyce, having gone with dispatches to Inkerman, so when I was aroused from my sleep at dead of night by a sharp knocking at the door of the barrack room, I was not at all surprised, as it might be Joyce, or indeed it might be that I was wanted in some drunken brawl at the township, a not at all unusual matter in those days of gold and drink. This latter consideration induced me to keep quiet for a moment or two, for I was tired and awfully sleepy. But before I had time to think twice, the knock was repeated at the small window above my head. "'Who's there?' I asked angrily, for I thought it a bit of unwarrantable presumption for anyone to be so determined to get the ear of a mounted man in so unceremonious a way. Nor do I think you need be surprised at this feeling on my part, seeing there are actually, even at this day of greater enlightenment, policemen who think it a compliment to the public to do, or pretend to do, the duty the said public pay them for doing. "'Who's there?' "'It's me, Barbara, Mr. Sinclair. Open the door, quick.' "'Barbara, at that time of night. Something had occurred then. You may be sure I lost no time in admitting her, and felt scared at the hurriedly dressed figure and white face that came within the glare of my newly lighted lamp. "'Don't ask any questions. I have no time,' she panted, for her walk had apparently been as hurried as the darkness would permit. "'I left him asleep, but he might wake at any moment and miss me.' "'You are speaking of Bart?' "'Yes, and I want to tell you, a man he called Blake came to him this evening, and he took him out to the back. But hearing there was some kind of row, I managed to get behind the water-barrel, and heard enough to confirm suspicions I have long had. A lot of men came in, and the man Blake went away. But they are to meet to-night, halfway between this and the man Blake's shanty on the old Corong Road. I can't watch or listen there. See that you do.' and she turned to the door. "'Stay,' I cried. "'Tell me what it is that you suspect. Have you found out anything about Bart's old connection with Blake?' "'No need to tell now. I must go.' "'Barbara, was—do you think that Sailor Bob was—' "'Hush!' she almost shrieked. "'I cannot bear it. But, oh, what can you know about the horror I suspect?' "'More, far more than you dream of, my poor girl. But go home.' We are already on the track of Sailor Bob's disappearance. Go home. He will be avenged. I know he will, for I will avenge him. I have sacrificed my body and my soul for revenge. Do you think I will not accomplish it? And without another word she disappeared in the darkness. When Barbara had gone, I remembered that she had not supplied me with any particulars. I did not even know the time the men were to meet. It would be necessary for me to manage a few words with the woman some time during the day, which was now nearly breaking. How sincerely and selfishly 
I hoped that Tom Doyle might not come for a day or two, so that I might astonish him with my success in the interpretation of his dream when he did come. On riding up the street about noon on that day, I observed Bart putting gravel under the new veranda so as to raise the ground to the level of the inside flooring. He was wheeling the gravel in a barrow from the bed of the creek, and Barbara was hanging out clothes on a line at the back. She saw me and dropped her basket instantly as I drew bridle and paused. One look to satisfy her that Bart's back was turned, and she was at the front door in a jiffy. The time. I forgot to tell you. Half past eleven o'clock. Don't fail. And she disappeared from the doorway while I rode on, having scarcely had time to fairly become stationary. I was full of my anticipated watch all day, and longing for the hour to come that I might start. Joyce had returned, so I was at liberty, but I did not think it necessary to trust him with the secret of my expedition. I was in charge at Kingower, and not obliged to ask any man's permission as to my movements. The only precaution I took was to leave a note for Doyle on the table, and to tell Joyce, If I am not home by daylight, open that note, read it, and follow me. I left the camp a little after ten o'clock, and rode leisurely up the old Corong track. It was so dark that I did not fear detection, and I knew there was no danger of encountering Bart, who would be certain to strike across the lead through the bush, which would cut off a mile of the road from his tent. A new chum would have had some difficulty in guiding his horse on the bush track I followed in the darkness, but I was no new chum, and besides, my animal knew the road well, and required little save a loose bridle at my hands. I had planned my procedure during the day. There was an old deserted hut by the side of the road within about a quarter of a mile of the place where the accomplices of four years ago were to meet. I would fasten the horse behind this hut and skirt the bush beside the track for the rest of the way on foot. I was not afraid of the animal being discovered or interfered with, for the hut was a good bit back from the track, surrounded with brush and in ruins. When I reached the hut, I struck a match and saw by my watch that it was nearly eleven o'clock. I had no time to spare. Either of the men might be there before the time, so I hastily fastened up the horse in the shelter of the hut, and moved cautiously toward what I supposed to be the appointed place of meeting. There was a spot where the shortcut from Kingower lead joined the Corong track, and as it was about halfway to Blake Shanty, I determined to watch there. At all events, I should see Bart when he passed the place, which he must pass to gain the road at all. I do not say see unadvisedly, for the moon was at last struggling above the tops of the trees as I reached the fork of the tracks. I could see faintly up the shadowed Corong Road, and to a little distance on the Kingower track, so here I paused to select a shelter. I was not at a loss for one in the dense bush that fringed the roads. Close against the bole of a huge box-tree grew a heavy cluster of underwood, rich in its fresh young foliage. Here, between the young wood and the old, I planted myself. Not five minutes too soon. The time appointed had not yet arrived when an apparently noiseless figure appeared moving toward me on the Corong track. I had no doubt that it was Blake, and he was on foot. Of course I could not be certain at first, but who else would be on that lonely bush road at such a time, on foot, save he whom Bart was to meet? It was Blake. As he paused in the middle of the track near the fork, a ray of moonlight fell upon the dark face and the tall figure. I could even trace the scowl that bent low his heavy brows, as— by an impatient stride he came nearer and bent his ear to listen. He heard something, and so did I. It was the regular, though not hurried, fall of a horse's feet. The sound came nearer and nearer, and at last Bart rode up to the motionless figure opposite to my hiding-place. "'You are late,' Blake said huskily. "'You would have been late, too,' Bart returned sulkily, as he dismounted. "'If you had to come across that old lead in the pitch-darkness, I was nearly down a shaft a dozen times.' "'No loss if you had,' Blake said with a sneer. "'It might have been a loss to you, mate,' Bart retorted. "'If you didn't want me alive, what did you bring me here for?' "'Me bring you here? That's a good one, too.' And the man laughed an unnatural laugh that sounded strangely in the weird night. "'It was you that proposed the meeting. I said all I had to say when I said, "'I want my own that you robbed of me, Bart, Sean. "'You said you had a proposal to make here.' "'When you say I robbed you, Dan Blake, you lie. "'And when you call the money you speak of your own, you lie again.' "'Blake lifted his clenched right hand, but let it fall again. 
let me hear your proposal before another word is said he said in a hoarse low tone it's easy said dan blake my proposal is that you empty your purse into my hand to save your neck there was a silence of a few seconds it seemed as if blake could not speak for very rage one hand clenched the other clutched at his throat as if he was choking full in the low moonlight i could see his white face with an awful expression that had murder in it as he glared at the determined-looking man who had just spoken and who now met his stare steadily as well as with apparent unconcern did it never strike you bart shorn that your neck and mine mightn't be far apart in a case of that kind at last asked blake between his teeth no it never struck me so it only struck me that i can hang you as easily as i mount this horse and i will do it dan blake if you refuse my offer the words were spoken fiercely as he seated himself in the saddle still however keeping his face to blake and one hand i noticed in the bosom of his shirt and see here he added i'll give you till to-morrow at noon if by that time you have not laid fifty guineas in my hand you know what you have to expect you have the money and you needn't try to deny it i don't deny it blake returned with a singular quietness but before you shall get another coin of mine to spend as you spent what you robbed me of i'll hang but bart shorn you'll hang with me and turning on his heel he dived into the bush so close to me that his elbow rustled the bushes which sheltered me mind i give you till noon ha ha was the reply echoing mockingly through the dark forest bart drew his hand from his breast and something glittered in the moonlight as he stretched out his arm in the direction of the receding laugh it was the barrel of a revolver but a second thought lowered the arm as he turned his horse's head and went back by the way he came what had i gained by my espionage i questioned as my horse regained i rode easily homeward under the growing moonlight the fact certainly that there was some secret of life and death between these two men a secret which there was a chance of my becoming acquainted with if bart kept to his threat of informing but not a word had been said of sailor bob at all did then the secret relate to him the day passed slowly for me i went round the township in the forenoon and saw bart still engaged with his gravel and i did not see barbara at all i returned to camp at noon and waited uneasily was I hoping indeed that Bart Shawn, as Blake had called him, would keep his threat of turning informer about a crime in which he himself was implicated? It seemed so. At three o'clock I saw Bart himself making his way up the hill to the camp. His face was pale, his step unsteady. When he reached the step leading up to the open door of the barrack room, he hesitated so long that I feared he would turn back and leave me in ignorance of what I so much wished to know. So I got up and hastened to meet him hello is this you mr bart are you coming in what a fine day it is he put his foot determinedly on the first step on the second and crossed the threshold even then he hesitated and looked out the door down toward the lead and the tented street with a longing and troubled gaze as if he was sorry he had left them but all at once he turned his back on the door and his face to me as he took off his felt hat the perspiration was almost dripping from his forehead and he dashed it off with his hand i've come to report something in the way of your business to you constable and-and i don't like to do it he commenced desperately sit down and take your time i returned as i seated myself on the edge of the table i'm not altogether blameless myself he went on with his elbows on his knees and his hat drooping in his hands between them i should have told four years ago but when a man's word will hang one he has been friendly with he is loth to say the word hanging i repeated in feigned surprise yes it is of murder i am going to speak constable what can be done to me for hiding the knowledge so long he looked at me eagerly as he spoke and again the big sweat drops swelled on his forehead that depends i replied shirking the question had you any hand in it yourself no he almost shouted if i had do you think i would be here to tell you of it well i should suppose not seeing that as an accomplice you would barely save your neck by turning queen's evidence no i do not think it likely that you would risk imprisonment for life by coming here to tell at this time of day but what urged you to inform now after all these years it happened in this neighbourhood he replied and his eyes fell to the floor 
and as I have seen the man's right hand in the grip of honest men, it turns me, knowing as I do, that the same right hand was red with blood four short years ago. You'd better begin at the beginning and tell me the whole story. And I seated myself at the table and drew writing materials towards me. And you know, you must be cautious, as every word will be taken down. Every word? Yes, I write shorthand. He looked toward the door and half rose, but I put out my hand and pushed him back to his seat again. You've said too much or too little, Bart, I explained. You have confessed to compounding a felony, and you will only get into the mess by yourself if you don't tell the truth. I thought the man would have fainted, as suddenly the sense of his own danger came upon him with overwhelming force. But he is suddenly rallied, and a fierce determination flushed the pale face as he lifted his eyes and began. I suppose it's a weakness in me, but it is hard to be the cause of taking away a man's life. Still, he don't deserve to live. I can't deny that. The man is Dan Blake of the shanty at Old Sinnet's Road. Your friend, Constable Doyle, knows him well. It happened one stormy night four years ago. Constable Doyle was in the shanty the same night. Storm's dead, though he little guessed what happened under the same roof with him. I had been digging at Reynolds Creek with a mate known as Sailor Bob, an elderly man, and a decent enough mate, only he was always jawing about his daughter at home. Sailor Bob had got gold before, but we got more at Reynolds, and he told me he had sent money to bring his girl out from home. Reynolds got worked out, and we thought to try for nuggets here at Kingower. On the way we stopped at Blake's and got gambling. The old man, Bob, was crusty and bounceable in his drink, and got to blowing about the gold he had to draw on in his belt when he lost as he somehow nearly always did. This went on for some days, and we were never fairly sober, until at last came the stormy night that Constable Doyle took shelter at Blake's. Bob and I slept on the floor in one of the little back rooms, and to tell the truth, I don't remember lying down. I was drunk, and so was Bob. I was roused by... I don't know what. I thought I had been dreaming of trouble in some shape or other, but fairly awake. I sat up, just as a terrible clap of thunder shook the very ground, I put out my hand to feel for my mate. He was not beside me, and my hand went into something wet and clammy. Thinks I, the rain has been coming down on Bob, and he's cleared out for some dry place. And I was just going to lie down again when a flash of light came across my eyes from a crack in the slabs. I looked out and saw Mrs. Blake standing about twenty yards back in the bush. The light of a lantern she held low near the ground unsteadily flashing up now and then in her face. By the same light I saw Blake, with a pick and shovel lying at his feet, and in his hand the chamois belt Bob always wore, and in which he carried his gold. He was emptying part of its contents into a small canvas shot-bag, and then he buried the belt near the old log, and tossed sticks and branches over it. I lay down, horrified. I was frightened for a bit. They had murdered my mate, and the drink had been hocused. I could feel it now in the queer state of my brain. It seemed as if I could not think but I satisfied myself that my revolver was all right before I lay down and fell, in spite of myself, asleep. He stopped suddenly. I was sitting with my back to the door, with Bart on my left hand. When he ceased his narrative, I ceased my shorthand and looked at him. He was staring wildly toward the door. Tom Doyle was standing there. He had just come in time to hear the interpretation of his dream. "'Don't stop,' Tom said abruptly, as he entered and leaned against the table. I've heard the most of it. Go on. What bribe did Blake give you to hide a foul, villainous murder for four long years? Bart's eyes fell again. I didn't want blood money, he said surlily. But when he found I knew all, Blake and the missus begged and prayed so for their lives, and the man was past help. What could I do? You could pocket your murdered mate's gold, and you did, Tom said with bitter irony. You could dip your hand in his blood as it lay beside you in one bed, and you could then finger his gold with the same hand, and eat it and drink it for four years. That's what you could do by your own telling. But you have not told all, Bart Sean. If the poor man's cry for mercy and help wakened me in the front room, how is it that you slept through them at his very side? I arrest you as an accomplice in the murder of a man known as Sailor Bob. Tom had risen staggeringly at Tom's first suspicious words, and his face grew grey with fear. He laid an outstretched hand on the table to support himself, but ere he was aware, it was handcuffed, snatched toward the other, and coupled to it. The support gone, he toppled back into his seat again, with great beads on his forehead, 
which he was not now able to wipe off. They gathered big in the momentary silence, these great sweat drops, until, one by one, they began to fall on the bright steel handcuffs. Good heavens, how he shook! What an agony of terror was only half hidden in his pleading eyes! What a coward he was at heart! I didn't do it, he gasped. Don't say anything you don't want to say, Doyle reminded. Every word will be used against you. Mind, I've warned you. I didn't do it, the prisoner repeated doggedly. I came here to turn evidence against Blake, and I had no hand in it. Even if you are right, Tom, I whispered, let him turn Queen's evidence. Yes, he's an informer. Cut out, ready-made, Tom sneered aloud. If you want to offer yourself as Queen's evidence, you can do it. I didn't do it, I tell you, Bart roared, and now that the man was desperate, you could see the real nature peeping out. A hot flush, that still reddened as he spoke, dried up the sweat on his forehead, that lowered over his fierce eyes like a thundercloud. I'm willing to point out where the corpse was buried. I can't say no more. Only, he shouted as he rose to his feet and raised his handcuffed wrists on high, only, I wish to God my knife was in your heart this minute. I dare say, replied the threatened Doyle, your remark confirms my opinion of you. Sinclair, you are in charge here. I will sign the charge sheet. Get Joyce to put this prisoner in the lock-up. But it was on our way to Blake's an hour or so after that Bart's real nature displayed itself to the greatest disadvantage. We had removed his handcuffs with the information that his first attempt at escape would put a bullet through him, and, mounted on Joyce's horse, he rode with one of us on either side of him. He scarcely spoke until he was more than halfway, and then he pulled up suddenly. Look here. My life's in danger facing Blake's. Mind, I look to you for protection. I'll save you for something else if I can, Doyle replied significantly. I'll not go another foot till you promise to protect me. Blake will murder me. I know he will. Nonsense, I said, feeling an unutterable contempt for the white-livered informer. Your hands are free. Can't you protect yourself from attack? Besides, we are three to one. Right on. He did, but with such a white face and wild eyes as made me feel like putting a bullet through him to steady him. All the rest of the way he kept muttering to himself, and when the shanty came in view he would have dropped behind had I not seized the bridle of the horse and kept it up with my own. We reached the shanty and alighted, but there was no movement in the open doorway or at the front of the house. By previous arrangement I took charge of the informer when our horses were fastened, and Doyle slipped round to the back. It would have been pitiful, if it had not been disgusting, to see how Bart Shawn trembled as he watched window and door, shrinking, meanwhile, as close to me as he dared, and as Tom appeared at the back door and beckoned me to enter, I had to seize him by the arm and almost force him to go in. Wretched being! I have often wondered since at that strange instinct of self-preservation that seemed to hold him back, as with iron bands, from what awaited him within. As we crossed the front apartment where Tom had slept on the sofa and dreamed his dream four years ago, he shuddered as a man mounting the scaffold. Blake was sitting behind the table. Tom was moving toward him. Blake's eyes were fixed in stern expectancy on the door by which we were entering. The man had apparently been making some kind of meal, for the remains were still on the table. I noticed, however, that only one plate lay there. What had become of Mrs. Blake? "'This man has laid an information against you for murder, Daniel Blake,' said Doyle, "'and it is my duty to arrest you on suspicion.' "'Suspicion's a fine thing,' Blake replied sneeringly, but he never took his eyes off the shrinking Bart. "'I have my own opinion as to the suspicious being reality. I was here on the night of the murder myself, you may remember.' If Bart Shawn accuses me of murder, let him prove it. And still his fierce eyes never left Bart's white face. He has come here to point out where you buried the body, said Tom. You had better come out with us, but mind, you are my prisoner, and there are two revolvers to prevent your escape alive. I shall not try to escape till my work is done, Blake returned as he rose. I pushed my man out the back door and followed to place myself between him and Blake for there was something so threatening in Blake's face that for the first time I shared the informer's fears for his own safety, and it would seem that Doyle shared my doubts as he placed himself between Bart and Blake. The informer led the way to a fallen and rotten tree about fifty yards from the hut, 
by the side of which a great heap of dead branches were lying. "'There is where he buried the body,' Bart said, pointing to the heap, "'close against the log where the branches lie.' A smile of such intense sarcasm curled Blake's lip, though only for a second, that I watched, with some interest, my mate's movements. He had caught up a shovel as he passed a shed, and now, directing me to look after both prisoners, he began to work actively in tossing the dead boughs from the indicated spot. This was soon accomplished, and then Tom tossed out shovelful after shovelful of the soft, black vegetable mould which the rotting branches had hidden. "'You'd better let me have a spell at it, Tom,' I said as he paused. "'No, not at all. It's softer sand and far lighter. But I see no signs of a body here. Are you sure this was the place?' he asked of Bart. "'Quite sure.' Yet even the informer began to watch the deepening hole uneasily, while Blake actually laughed aloud. "'There's such a thing as bearing false witness, Mr. Policeman,' he said sneeringly and a man may sell his soul to the devil to hang a man he has a down on, without succeeding after all. "'I'll pledge my life the body of Sailor Bob is there,' Bart cried excitedly. "'Unless the villain has removed it, he's quite capable of it.' Blake laughed aloud again. "'Don't stick at trifles, Bart, Sean,' he said. "'It's hard for a man to die without accomplishing his purpose.' "'I'll accomplish mine at all events,' Bart exclaimed with fierce disappointment, as he saw Tom step out of the excavation, and tossed down the shovel with a smothered oath. "'You've shifted Sailor Bob's corpse, but I'll find it and hang you before I die.' "'You'll do neither,' Blake said. "'You'll die now.' And before a thought could be spoken, the barrel of a pistol flashed in the sun. There was a loud report, and Bart Sean fell on his face on the soft soil Tom had just heaped up by the side of his excavation. "'Now if I'm hung, it will be for ridding the world of a villain,' cried Blake, as he tossed the pistol from him. Thank God, at least, for revenge. Oh, Mark, what fools we have been. We should have searched him, Doyle exclaimed as he handcuffed the now quiet Blake. We are to blame for this man's death. I should regret it more if it had been a better man, I replied with uncharitable hardness, as I raised Bart and turned his white earth-soiled face up to the light. He was conscious, but a stream of blood was welling from his breast, the murderer's ball having entered his back and penetrated clear through his body. His eyes fastened themselves in a gaze of terror and reproach upon Blake, who stood looking down on him triumphantly, with his handcuffed wrists crossed before him. At this instant, just as I was trying to staunch the flowing stream of red that had already found its way to my knees on the ground, I became conscious of a step that was none of ours on the sticks behind me, and looking round saw with astonishment that the dying man's wife was standing almost close to us. She had ridden over, as was evident from the spattered skirt and whip she carried in her hand. Her handsome face looked white and stern under the brim of her dark hat, and terrible, reproaching eyes were fixed on the face of her dying husband. "'So this is what you've come to, Bart Sean. You are dying. Speak. Where did you bury my murdered father?' "'Your father!' It was a gasp rather than words from Sean's rigid lips. "'Yes, my father.' I knew you had murdered my father before we were married a month. Murderers should never drink or talk in their sleep. Ah, God has avenged my poor father. Bart Sean, you know you feel that now, but the only atonement you can make now is to point out his grave. Speak. Where does father lie? He stared at her solemnly with already glazing eyes, and lifting his hand weakly, pointed toward Blake. Then he turned his head as if to hide his face in the soil, and died. Barbara turned quickly to Blake. "'He is dead,' she said firmly, "'and he has referred me to you for the answer. "'What did you and he do with the man you robbed and murdered, called Sailor Bob?' "'I know nothing of him,' Blake replied sulkily. "'He accused me. He lied. He said I had buried him there. He lied. See, the hole is empty.' "'Bart Sean was born a liar, I, and a thief,' he added fiercely, "'as his face grew crimson with some remembered cheatery of the dead man at his feet.' "'If you want to know where Bob is resting now, I can show you. "'He never rests at night, I suppose because his bed is so cold, "'for he rambles about the place until the day dawns. "'But he's resting now, and I'll show you.' "'When our astonished faces were turned toward the speaker, "'we saw that wretched being, Mrs. Blake. "'She was standing at a little distance, "'holding in one hand the end of a rope which was fastened round her waist.' and which presented the appearance of having been gnawed off. 
she was indeed a miserable and piteous object with torn clothes and tangled hair and wild reason-forsaken eyes flashing like live coals in her hollow face for a moment surprise held us dumb and she spoke again with a little piteous giggle you see dan was always a bit jealous of the troopers and he tied me up so i couldn't come before but i'll show you now a spasm of the fiercest rage shot across dan blake's face as he saw his unhappy wife free and about to disclose his secret one quick glance he darted toward his distant revolver another of ineffectual desperation at his shackled wrists with a half-stifled oath he lifted his wrists and vainly tried to wrench them apart and then i was at his side warning him for his own sake to attempt no further violence come and show me then barbara replied with sudden softness as she with woman's quick eyes saw the vacancy in the poor reasonless face of blake's wife do show me where bob rests do you know i am his daughter bob's daughter i had a father long ago a very long time ago i'm glad you've come perhaps he'll sleep better now dan took him out of that bed and she pointed to the grave-like hole and i thought he might be warmer in his new bed but he never rests he comes every night to my bedside and his teeth chatters he's so cold once i wanted him to take one of my blankets but he wouldn't no he wouldn't this is unbearable muttered doyle whose face was growing white as he listened to and watched this poor victim to her own and her husband's sin show us the place where sailor bob is there's a good soul yes he is here call him perhaps he will answer his daughter i have often called him by day but he never answered me only once when it thundered she led the way to one of the old broken sheds where under a litter of rotting straw we found all that remained of poor sailor bob they were buried after the trial which condemned blake to death for his double murder by barbara who shortly afterwards left kingawa and has not to my knowledge been heard of since bart too was buried on the same day but no wife wept at his funeral or chose his grave poor mrs blake was sent to an asylum for the insane where she was followed even to her deathbed by bob who would not rest and was always cold as she was dying she said that he had taken her blanket at last for she was cold now and he was warm during a ransacking of Blake's shanty ere we burnt it to the ground tom and i discovered hidden in a wretched old mattress a well-kept rifle ha cried my mate as he took a bullet from his pocket and fitted it to the bore this is the rifle that fired at me that day eh well that relieves the bushrangers of that at all events blake knew me and wanted me out of the way i suppose he was afraid i might try and find out the interpretation of my dream End of story